So this morning we're going to be continuing our Christianity 101 series with a message talking about angels and demons, otherwise known as created spiritual beings. And that's something I'm going to be emphasizing this morning. You're going to be hearing me say that phrase, created spiritual beings, a lot because it's important to the understanding of what we're going to be talking about this morning. When I got saved in 1993, a lot of people considered me to be a lost cause throughout most of my life. If I had completed high school, they probably would have voted me least likely to succeed and most likely to end up in prison at some point. So when I actually accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, people were really excited and really were investing in me to make sure I didn't backslide or didn't uh, leave the church and go back into the world. And one of the ways that they did it is everybody found out that I really loved to read. So every single Sunday that I came to church, it seemed like somebody would have a new book for me because they knew I, learned, I loved how to read. And I devoured these books. I mean, I would read books all the time. I'd read them at lunch at work. I'd read them when there was nothing good on TV. In fact, Tammy and I would often be laying on the couch together. She'd be on one side, I'd be on the other. We'd both be reading books on a Saturday, and we'd get done about the same time, hand the book off to each other, and, and keep reading books. That's what we did before the internet. When there's nothing on TV, we would actually read books. I know that it would be before the internet, there was like, that's just like the Stone Age, but that's what we used to do, it was read all the time. And I'm still a very much of a reader. My favorite possession is probably my Kindle, where I have a couple hundred books on there that I can pick up and read whenever I want. And one of these books that shaped my early understanding of created spiritual beings, otherwise known as angels and demons, was a book called Piercing the Darkness by Frank Peretti. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's a book about angels and demons, and it's a fictional book. It's not like a biblical book, but it's a fictional book, and it talks about the different types of warfare that angels get into with the powers of darkness and, and trying to thwart their plans, and it shows it from a, a very interesting point, but it's not really biblically accurate. Angels and demons are a subject of great fascination in our culture. And I was thinking about it this week. I don't think there's been a time in my lifetime when there hasn't been at least one TV show on that deals with angels. I thought back into my childhood and remembered that famous TV show, Highway to Heaven. Remember Michael Landon starred as a human who becomes a guardian angel. And that show ran for five seasons and either intentionally or unintentionally shaped many people's opinions of what an angel is. Other shows like Touched by an Angel and, and the different TV shows further push the idea of angels being just like you and I with a couple of extra abilities maybe. And I think that we can agree that both Hollywood and their movies and TVs and their shows have taken very large creative liberties with what an angel is. And even more so, they've taken liberties when it comes to the evil side of created spiritual beings and how we view the devil, the demons, or witchcraft, or the supernatural. Right now, there's, I just went through really quickly, I counted like 10 different programs on the, the three big networks or on the, the major cable networks of, that dealt with demons and devils and witchcraft or the supernatural. There, it, TV is just filled with these kinds of programs right now. In fact, one of the most famous movies in existence right now is a movie called The Exorcist. 
I think it was filmed right, right around 1974 or so. And before I came to Christ, I had seen this movie because I used to love horror movies. And it's really, really bad. I wouldn't encourage anybody to see it. It's very blasphemous. And it's not even a remotely accurate portrayal of what demon possession would look like or how we deal with it. You really don't need an old priest and a young priest. You don't need an extensive liturgy to get the devil or a demon out of somebody. And if you watch that and, and look at that, it's going to decrease your faith in what it means to be a child of the King of Kings and the power that you and I have as a child of God over the demonic realm. So today I want to cut through all of what the world is trying to tell us about these created spiritual beings, mainly angels and demons, but some of the, of the other spiritual beings that the Bible talks about. And I want us to see what God's word actually says about them and what they mean to us right here in the here and now and hopefully dispel some of that fiction that might have crept into our belief system. We're going to be looking at a lot of different Bible verses. So many Bible verses that I, I may not pause before I get to them, but if you want to keep up, there's a list on the back of your bulletin that if you want to keep up and read along with us in the Bible, it can help you keep up with that. And just to clarify, I'm not going to preach tradition this morning. I'm not going to preach in a way that says, well, this is the way the church has always believed. I'm going to look at specifically what the Bible says about angels and demons and created spiritual beings. I don't want to focus on all of that other stuff. I want to see what God's word actually has to say about it. Because there is a lot to say about it within the word of God. If you have any questions about anything I'm going to talk about this morning, just wait to the end and we'll answer them during our question and answer time. So let's ask God's blessing this morning as we delve into this crea the created spiritual beings. And Father God, I just ask, Father, for extra special help of your Holy Spirit this morning. As I'm going to be delving into an area of the Bible that is ripe for going off into flights of fancy. It's, it's ripe to try to read into what's there instead of actually reading what's there. And I ask, Father, that you just help us to understand and clarify exactly why this is important and what it means for our life today and to see, to see your kingdom accurately so that we know how to fight the warfare that you have given us and, and that exists around us. Father, we ask this in your name. Amen. So today I've organized this lesson in three parts. The first part is going to be dealing with created spiritual beings on God's side. The second part will be dealing with spiritual or created spiritual beings who are part of the rebellion and follow the enemy. The third part will be a br very brief look about how both sides interact with us today. And before we get into that, I want to make one very important point that puts the rest of the lesson into perspective for you. You'll notice that I keep saying this same phrase over and over again. It's the same phrase that I led with. And that everything we're talking about today deals with created beings. No matter what side these beings exist on right now, every single one of them were created by God Almighty. When God created or finished creation in Genesis 1 and 2, he said that it was very good, meaning at that moment of finishing creation, 
Everything was in complete subjection to him. Everything was in complete obedience to him and that there was no sin, no rebellion, no spot, no wrinkle anywhere within the creation that he just formed. And the reason this is important is because one of the lies the enemy wants you to believe is that the devil and his followers are somehow on the same relationship with God, how they're still on the same power of God, that, that the devil is just part of the yin and yang, two opposite gods fighting with one another. But that's not the case. They were all created by God and chose to rebel. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. For now, let's look at the spiritual or the created spiritual beings on the side of God. We're going to go from the highest being meaning those beings that are the closest to God and, and exist within God's presence to those who exist kind of a little further outside of the presence. And for clarification, when I say created spiritual beings, I'm not talking about power, I'm not talking about glory, I'm not talking about authority necessarily, I'm just talking about a little bit of rank and position. It's kind of like saying, how a major general outranks, outranks a brigadier general. They're both generals, but one has a slightly higher rank than the other one does. I'm still talking about, with these creatures, when we're talking about them, we're talking about beings of immense power that on this side of eternity far surpasses anything that you and I have or anything that you and I can do. Now, Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5 tells us our position in relation to the heavenly beings. Psalm 8, 4, and 5 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So when it comes to supernatural ability, knowledge, and position, they surpass us at this point in time. That will change in the future. When we enter into our glorified bodies, we will have the same type of abilities. But for right now, that's where we are at, that they are higher than we are. So let's look at the created spiritual beings that are on the side of good, on God's side right now. And the highest order of created beings outside of the Godhead are the seraphim. We see them described in Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Isaiah gets a, a brief glimpse into the heavenly court, and he describes it here in Isaiah 6, which says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Ezekiel had a very similar uh, picture when he described what he saw when he looked into the throne room of God. And that's going to be in Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, I would encourage you to read the entire chapter on your own, but for the sake of time, I'm going to read just a few of the key verses here in Ezekiel chapter 1, starting in verse 4. 
Ezekiel said, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire it would look like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead, they did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion. And on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature on each side, and two wings covering its body. I would encourage you to read the rest of that entire chapter, because it goes on to describe them a little bit more. And you're talking about two different perspectives in the Bible that they're writing about. And you can also see them in Revelation chapter 4, 6 through 8. I believe that's one of the scriptures I tossed on the back of your bulletin just so you can study this on your own. So you ask now, what are these creatures? What are the seraphim? Well, the Bible shows that they are four specific creatures that guard and controlled access to what is known as the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory is the Bible's way of describing in the original language the entirety and full weighty presence of God, otherwise known as the glory of God. You see, it's this presence that Moses asked to see in Exodus chapter 33. He said, now God, show me your glory. And I would imagine that God smiled at that point because Moses was, was asking, God, show me everything that you are. But this would have been like trying to dump the entire ocean into an ant. I mean, you just cannot contain that kind of, of glory within a single person. And God told Moses, and I'm sorry, Moses, I can't do that. No one can see my glory and live, particularly before the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It would have killed him instantly. It would have been like taking wrapping paper that we're going to be wrapping presents soon and passing it over a blowtorch. It's just going to go... So even if the immediate presence of God didn't kill Moses, the seraphim as guardians of the throne of God, would not allow anything impure to see God and probably would have struck him down immediately. And we see this demonstrated in the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember the Ark of the Covenant, we're talking about a box, and this box had a cover on top of it called the Mercy Seat. Mercy Seat had two seraphim pointing their um, wings at one another, and they were to cover the glory of God that existed on that mercy seat in the temple. The actual Shekinah glory of God existed there, and this is where the priests would make the sacrifice once a year to wash away the sin of the nation of Israel. On this side of eternity, we're going to have no contact with the seraphim. Zero. We have no contact with seraphim. I know there's 
probably nobody's here has heard it, but I kind of, I read a lot of magazine articles and things, and I know there's some crazy people out there that tell us that seraphim speak to them. I No, there's no biblical indication of that. They are, exist, there's only four of them, and they exist immediately in the presence of God. The second order of created beings are that of the cherubim. The cherubim, I like to think of them as the Marine Corps of Heaven. You ever see pictures of the White House and the president's coming out and there's a Marine standing there at attention and he, he opens the door, they stand at the bottom of Marine One when he gets off the helicopter or Air Force One when he's getting ready to get up. They are the guardians of God. They're the first spiritual beings mentioned in the Bible. And it's easy to miss this, but after Adam and Eve fall in Genesis chapter 3, they're banished from the Garden of Eden. And what does God place between Eden and them? A cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the access to the tree of life. It's unknown how many cherubim actually exist, but I believe they are many. I don't think as many as our angels, but there's definitely more than four of them. And they're otherwise, they're very closely related to the seraphim in form and function. They guard the throne of God, and they guard things that God gives them um, charge over. In other parts of the Bible, particularly in Ezekiel, they are figuratively supporting the throne. Um, there's even a verse, I forgot to write it down here, but it talks about God riding the seraphim. I believe it's in Job. Um, I think it's... A little bit of poetic license. I don't think God's actually saddling up a cherubim and riding it around, but um, <laughs> um, it is in the Bible that they, in that sense. And one of the important parts of cherubim and seraphim that I want to bring up here is they are the only created spiritual beings in the Bible that are talked about as having wings. Everybody, when they think of an angel, they're thinking of a winged person. But when you look at the Bible, you can't point out a single instance when an angel appears before a person with wings. They always appear as, as human beings. It's kind of a, it comes from the artwork of the Renaissance, modern TV and Hollywood uh, movies. But there's no, I looked way back, there is no basis in the Bible or ancient Christian or Jewish beliefs that ever said angels have wings. Again, I don't think that we have contact on this side of eternity with cherubim, with a notable exception of one that we'll get to in a moment. The third order of created spiritual beings that we see on God's side are the angels. They're the most abundant of all and likely exist in the millions, if not more. The Bible describes their number as innumerable. And the person who wrote that, Apostle John, was one of the most educated disciples that existed. The Greek language contained language that went into the millions. You have to remember that they faced a Persian army a few centuries before this was written that was over a million people um, strong, So they had the ability to express numerically millions. And John says, even with this Greek language, I can't tell you how many angels there are because they are innumerable. So we're looking at hundreds of millions, if not billions of angels, possibly in existence. Saying that, 
The number of angels that do exist is fixed. There are no baby angels. They were directly created by God during creation week. And Jesus defines their nature and tells us that they're not given in marriage and therefore no baby angels. Angels have a hierarchy, meaning that they are organized in a way similar to an army. The highest ranking angels are called archangels. We know the names of two of the archangels, Michael and Gabriel. These are angels that just have that higher rank within the angelic army, or the angelic host, if you want to put it that way. And we know that Michael is the commander of God's army, and Gabriel is the messenger of God. Extra-biblical sources in the Apocrypha, if you came up within uh, a, a, Christian, a Christian group that reads the Apocrypha, also lists an archangel by the name of Raphael. Uh, that's in the book of Tobit, which is part of the Apocrypha. But it's not part of the accepted scripture. I just mentioned it this morning in case you've heard the name. There's also several others within the Apocrypha, but Raphael is the most notable one. Angels have a specific function when it comes to humanity. And that's how they're going to deal with us. And their actions are limited it by Hebrews 1.14 that says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation. And with the exception of one cherubim, they are the only spiritual being that may, in very rare circumstances, we will have conscious contact with. However, saying that, the Bible is clear, they surround us at all times. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. They exist around us at all times. If you remember the example in the Old Testament of Elijah's servant, who was freaking out because they're being surrounded by an army that was there for one purpose and one purpose only. That was to kill Elijah and his servant. So his servant is freaking out and Elijah prays to God and says, God, just open his eyes. Let him see what is actually happening in the spiritual. And God opened up the servant's eyes so he could see into the spiritual and he saw innumerable <laughs> angels surrounding them showing them that they far outnumbered any human army that stood before them. Amen. The Bible also tells us that they do often interact with us, but we don't perceive it, because in their mission to serve humanity, it is not about them. They don't want to reveal themselves very often, because they don't want you focusing on them at all. In fact, their whole Mission in life in serving us is to glorify Jesus Christ. That's all they care about. In fact, when they appear to us as angels and people actually will fall to their face or try to worship him, an angel of God will strongly rebuke a human for trying to worship them. Every single time they will tell you, do not worship me. I am a fellow servant along with you. Worship God. They will always point you to God. Another very important point that I hinted a moment ago, but it bears repeating that all these spiritual or created spiritual beings, including angels, are without gender. They are not born with male and female characteristics. Of characteristics. Saying that, though, biblically speaking, 
When an angel does appear to a human being, they have always, biblically speaking, appeared with masculine features. There's a reason for that. It is not that man is higher than woman, but it's a result of the fall. You remember that God told Eve that your heart will be for your husband when he placed the husband in charge of the family. So God is not going to go against his created order in presenting female angels that are always masculine. That doesn't mean that females are lesser. It doesn't mean that they can't even necessarily appear as female. But there is no indication in the Bible that they ever have. And therefore, I say if an if a angel appears to you as a woman, I'd be kind of suspicious of that, of that angel, personally. Angels have supernatural abilities. They are seen flying. We're not talking about flying with wings. We're thinking Superman. Up, up, and away. They can, they can fly. They can blink here and blink over in Black River and blink over in China if they want to. They're able to do that. They have su very supernatural ab abilities. They can walk through walls just as de de uh, Jesus did. They can interact with our world. They can influence matter. If an angel wanted to pick up my glasses here and throw them across the room, he could do it right now if he wanted to. They can, um, they can even um, influence us as far as speaking to us, as far as guiding us and, and making sure that we're safe and making sure that we're not being led into sin. They have a free will. The angels that exist now have picked their sides and they aren't as t God's angels aren't really tempted by sin anymore. They all have a singular focus to serve Jesus Christ with everything they are. Angels worship, the Bible talks about that. They do battle, the Bible talks about that. Particularly in the book of Daniel, when Daniel is told that, that, the, that an answer was given to him, and, but he was resisted by the demonic realm, and that answer has now finally come. So we know that they do battles in some way. And that they um, will often protect us and influence to follow God more closely. So those are the created spiritual beings that are on God's side or stayed loyal to God. Now we're going to look at the other side, the side that rebelled. It bears mentioning, before we delve into talking about the evil one or the realm of darkness, that the Bible really doesn't talk a lot about it. And the reason is, is because God doesn't want us to be that concerned about it. He doesn't want us to try to discover the devil's so-called deep secrets. He tells us to avoid too much focus on the devil and his way. Focus on God and everything else will, will be obvious of what is Satan. So this part of the message will be brief. What we do know about the kingdom of darkness is that there was a rebellion led by one of the cherubim. The source documents used to translate the King James Version, called the Texas Recepticus, um, said that this cherub's name is Lucifer. The more reliable and older documents don't list the name, but most of you know Lucifer and who he is, so we're just going to go with that for the sake of clarity. Now, according to the Bible, Lucifer was a guardian cherub assigned to Eden. And we see this in Ezekiel 28. The verses we're going to look at today are 11 through 18, but for time's sake, I'm just going to condense it a little for clarity. 
Ezekiel begins chapter 28 by prophesying against an actual physical king that existed in a city called Tyre at that time. And then suddenly he kind of switches and looks at the spirit behind what is causing this king to sin, uh, sin so much. So in Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 11, it said that the word of the Lord came to me. And then in verse 12, God starts speaking through Ezekiel. He says, Son of man, take up a lament against the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is now just going to start describing Lucifer before his fall. You are full, the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the guardian of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Skipping down to verse 14. You are anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You are on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You are blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Skipping to the last part of verse 16. It says, So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth, I made you a spectacle before kings. What the Bible describes here is that some point after creation, a lot of theologians believe that the angels were created on creation day one, or the, the created spiritual beings were all created on creation day one. So at some point between them and Adam and Eve's original sin, Lucifer was found to be in rebellion against God. He was then cast out of God's presence and immediately struck back at God. He knew he couldn't hurt God personally. He knew he couldn't just wind up and, and try to get in a boxing match with God and hurt him personally. So he struck the one way he could, and that was to attack Adam and Eve and cause them, in essence, to join his rebellion. He knew how important humanity was to God, and he struck the only way he could, and he was successful. Lucifer also influenced one-third of the angels to follow him, and now they have become what the Bible calls demons. You see that in Revelation 12. Revelation 12 is God showing John, the Apostle John, a prophetic view of the past. Lucifer is portrayed as a dragon whose rebellion causes one-third of the angels to fall. And you read about it in Revelation 12, verse 3, when it says, Another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. That's a, a prophetic poetic way, if you will, of saying that Satan led this rebellion and a third of the angels followed him. John then shows a future event a few verses later in Revelation 12, verse 7, when he said there's a war in heaven. This is something that's going to happen, not something that's happened yet. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. 
He was hurled down to the earth and his angels with them. When you put that in the prophetic timeline, bold judgments happen. That's when the total judgments fall upon the earth. God's judging the angels and the devil as much as he's judging humanity at that point. That's why those judgments are total, by the way. That's, that's a freebie. I didn't write that in there. So those verses show us the origin of the devil and of demons. They are created spiritual beings that rebelled against their creator, and one fallen cherub, and the rest are fallen angels. Jesus now referred to Lucifer as Satan, a title meaning deceiver or liar. His followers have that same character and continue in their rebellion against God to this day. And there's one thing I want you to know about our enemy that God also wants you to know, to believe and let it influence your faith and your beliefs this morning. And that is that Satan is, not, is powerful. He is a cherub, but he is not divine. While he is more powerful spiritually than you or I, he does not possess the divine attributes. He is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. He is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. He is not omnipresent in that he exists everywhere at once. In other words, you can't say that Satan is influencing the guy across the street and influencing you at the same time. He is one being. He can't, he, he can't spread himself out. So he is one being. If you are being tempted, it's coming from within you or maybe possibly from one of his demons. He is not the opposite of God in that he does not have anywhere near the same power that God does. Right. Trying to compare them is like trying to compare a single baby black ant next to the biggest elephant on earth. There, there is no comparison at all. He might want you to think that he can cause harm to God, but he can't. God, with a single least thought in his mind, could blink Satan and every demon out of existence if he so chose. There is no comparison. Satan cannot win this war. Even in all of his madness and evil, he knows that he is not going to win. But he's going to cause as much harm as he can before he does it. In Revelation 12, 12, it says, But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you, he is filled with wrath because he knows his time is short. He knows he can't win. But he is still going to do as much damage as he can before he is cast into that pit. Now Satan may try to convince his followers that he can win this war. But the Bible very plainly reveals in his heart he knows he is doomed. But he is so twisted and so evil that the only thing he wants to do on the way out is cause God as much pain as he can by dragging as many humans as possible into the pits of hell with him. Now those are all the created spiritual beings, the seraphim, the cherubim, and the angels on the side of, of God and us and the side of the devil and his fallen angels. They are now called demons because they are on the side of the rebellion. So what does this mean for us today? I alluded to this before, but angels are dispatched according to the will of God and not our will. They have no authority to, we have no authority on this side of eternity to tell an angel to do anything. That's very important because we can't like pray to an angel and pray that they do something 
and and expect it to happen. We don't have that authority. A lot of a lot of um, um, kind of fringe charismatic groups think that they can tell angels what to do. The Bible says no. You are to pray to God, and if God so chooses to send an angel, He will. But it's up to God and how He wants His will accomplished. Just like I can't pray for God to influence my wife to do what I think she should do, my prayer for my wife is that she does what God thinks she should do. You see, there's a difference here, is that we focus on God. So the Bible says that we will judge angels someday. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 3. He's talking about lawsuits among believers. He's like, you guys can't make a simple decision of who's right or wrong amongst two Christian believers. He goes, we judge angels someday. And I don't think he's talking about God's angels. I think he's talking about the devil's angels. I'm not sure how we can judge God's angels other than to say, good job. I think we'll judge God, the, the demons someday, that we will be their judges. That's just a single verse in the Bible. It doesn't elaborate um, further, but it is in there that we will, when we step into God's presence and into the eternal life and eternity, that we will be higher than the angels at that point in rank. We have total authority over those beings who have rebelled. In other words, Satan and his demons. We are a child of God. We, that authority we carry, we carry right now. We have total and complete authority to tell the devil to leave us alone, to cast demons out of people, and to do all of this according to the will of God. That doesn't mean you can tell the, a demon to go do your dishes for you or to shovel your sidewalk. There was a, I listened to a sermon of a, a preacher who's kind of out there on the charismatic fringe who, who told a story once of the devil attacking him in Africa. And he, he said the devil picked up his bed and threw it across the room. And he told the devil to put it back and pick up the room while he's at it. And the, he claimed that the devil did that. And I'm, I'm kind of just going, ah! It's like pounding on a speaker with my Bible. And um, you don't have the authority to do that with a demon, nor, nor why would you want it? Right? I don't want a demon doing my dishes because he wouldn't do a good job. But, you know, we have that authority to order them to leave us alone and such. And you see Jesus and his disciples use this authority quite frequently. Or quite frequently. However, we have to be very careful that we don't get so focused on the supernatural that we see, it's, it's kind of a quote within church, you see a devil under every doily. I remember when I first got saved and I was listening to a lot of um, a lot of preachers talk about the supernatural and they weren't quite preaching it right. As, you know, they would say you walk past a liquor store and the demons of alcoholism were going to jump on you if you walk too close and that stuff's just ridiculous. It's it's the I think demonic possession and even oppression is the exception not the rule. And what the, the takeaway for us for that is don't blame the devil or the demons for everything that is wrong in your life. Now, are they behind it somewhere in the past? Probably. Have they influenced you some way in the past? Probably. But the Bible also says that when we sin, it's something that comes up from within us. Now, they might try to drag that out of you, but it has to start in here. 
This is why our, our focus shouldn't be casting the devil out of everything. It should be glorifying God and not giving the devil any foothold in our lives to pull our strings. That is the true way that we should look at that. Amen? Do we have any questions about what we talked about this morning? For those listening by podcast, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions about this or anything else that we can help you with in your walk with Jesus Christ, shoot me an email. It is pastorjohnoscar at gmail.com. It's J-O-H-N-O-S-C-A-R. Or look me up on Facebook under the same name, and I'd be happy to help you with your walk with Jesus or answer any questions that you might have. Take care, and God bless.